0: good to be with you this morning. Uh, a good title for this morning's sermon is Uncomfortable Friendships. Uncomfortable Friendships. Uh, that's what we see in 2 Samuel 12, where we'll be un- what we'll be unpacking today. Last week we looked at the story of David and his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and later it would result in the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And in that sermon, we discovered that the content of David's heart was made evident by the way that he used the royal messengers. Remember how we talked about that? He had ambassadors. And one of the key words that's used over and over again in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the word sent. Every time we saw the word sent, it implied that a messenger of David was being sent someplace. But the problem was this. When David sent Joab the general the battle plan, that's how a messenger should have been used. But then we discovered how David was using the messenger to go learn more about Bathsheba. He used the messenger and sent them to have Bathsheba come to the palace. A messenger was sent, and not for royal business, but to help David live out his sinful plans and so the word sent was very key in understanding the contents of David's heart well when we come to second samuel listen to how it opens in verse 1 this is interesting second samuel chapter 12 verse 1 the lord sent
1: nathan to david isn't that interesting
0: the lord Sent. Now, what David did out of his sinfulness, God in his holiness now steps into the story of David and Bathsheba, and God sends his messenger, the prophet Nathan. God now makes an appearance in the story right in the middle of the mess of David's life. God takes action by sending his messenger, the prophet Nathan, to David. The king of the universe, God himself, now takes center stage in the story. Now can you imagine being Nathan and God sends you to talk to the murderous king Man can you imagine what David or Nathan must have felt He's got to figure out how do I send this message so it doesn't get me killed uh, you know, many prophets have used the direct approach with kings, and think of what it's gotten them throughout scripture. The direct approach has caused many of God's prophets to be imprisoned, tortured, even killed because of the message that they brought to the king. So David, rather than, or excuse me, Nathan, rather than using the direct approach, he tells the king a story. Story time with King David. And here is the story, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1-4. through There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man, he had nothing except one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and it even slept in his arms. That lamb was like a daughter to the poor man. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the little lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And that's the story. Simple little story. One that we would likely tell our children and we'd get the, oh. But what's amazing about this story is that it worked. Because the text tells us by the end of the story, David's anger raged. Raged towards the rich man in this story. And David even vowed that the rich man must die. He must die for the injustice. And that's when the crooked, arthritic finger of Nathan pointed at David and said, David, you are that. Man. In fact, the text literally says, "You are the man." We learned something important about God here, and I don't want to go through this over this too quickly, but there's a very important thing that we understand about God from the opening of this story, and it is this: God sees, and God judges secret actions. God sees and God judges secret actions. See, one of the problems that we have in the 21st century right now, we think God is this distant thing, this distant being. We think God is concerned about our happiness. We don't really think that God takes our actions very seriously. And yet, in the 5th century, there was a minister by the name of Salvian who said this. He says, what do you say to this? You who believe that God does not judge our actions. What do you say, you who believe that he is no concern whatsoever for us? Do you not see that the eyes of God were never absent even from that secret sin through which David fell? Learn from this that you are always seen by Christ. Understand and know that you will be punished and perhaps very soon, you who think your sins are not seen by God. You see, even David, who scripture declares to be a man after God's own heart, even he was able to, even he was unable to hide his sin in the secrecy of his inner life. Neither was he exempt from immediate punishment through the privilege of doing great things for God. Church, God sees what we do. God knows everything about Troy. In fact, God even knows things within my heart that I try to forget or I have become so comfortable with that I may even dismiss. God knows our every thought. He knows our every secret. He knows our every action. God sees and judges secret actions. Well, the prophet's words hit David like a lightning bolt. And David, all David could say was this. Verse 13 says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now we find in this story a powerful example of the blessing of having an uncomfortable friend. Nathan was an uncomfortable friend that David needed. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, it says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now who's receiving this warning? The church? Troy? It's you? And listen to what he goes on to say. Here's his advice, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. So an uncomfortable friend an uncomfortable friend is a fellow disciple of Jesus who helps us avoid becoming hardened to the sins in our lives. Now, Capture that. An, an uncomfortable friend is a fellow disciple of Jesus who helps us avoid becoming hardened to the sin in our lives. Well, I'm blessed with an uncomfortable friendship. And in fact, I want to. Uh, would ask that you do me a favor. I want to ask my friend Brian Davis Supper. You've seen him play the drums for us, but he's going to join. So would you just welcome him up here for me? He, he and I have had an uncomfortable friendship for 10 years now. And I, we were talking, uh, Tammy had this idea, and I thought, oh, wow, that's great. We asked Brian, and he said he would be willing to help me out with this this morning. So we we were acquaintances for a long time. uh we were we were we'd been at church, we knew each other. um but do you remember when we really got to know one another? um at that time,
2: uh my wife and I were having uh marital problems and I remember we asked um, Troy and Tammy we were like, "Hey, would you guys be willing to meet us for lunch and maybe help us try to walk through some of these um hard times?" so we went to uh, Logan's Steakhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kind of sat in a back room by ourselves, and um, we were there for probably a couple hours, um, just discussing um, what was going on and how that was affecting our lives.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's when we went from being acquaintances to starting a friendship. But that's still not when we became uncomfortable friends. Um, can you can you remember the time? It was a few months after that lunch that something happened in your life that would change you. Uh, Share with us just a snapshot of what that was.
2: So um, at that time, I was living in sin. I had had an affair. I had got another woman pregnant, and pretty much my world um, was crashing down. My sin became known. I Sent a text message to about four or five different people, Troy and Tammy um, being one of them, and just saying, "Here's what's happened.
0: Well, I need help." We, we, we were talking about this the other day, and I totally forgot. We were on the road when he texted us, and I Tammy was driving. I get the text, and I read it to Tammy, and all oh, the emotions. I mean, they were all over the place. There was anger. There was confusion. There was hurt. There was fear. There was dread. And as, as difficult as all of that was, it was still not when our friendship was an uncomfortable friendship yet, was it?
2: So they came back home. Um, this was around right after Christmas. Um, reached out to Randy Garris, who was the Um, preacher at college heights at that time and said how can we help what can we do and they they came up with an idea we were going to put together a team of people uh, a restoration team um, that i would uh, live under to try and figure out what my life would look like from that point forward so the first meeting i had was with troy and tammy in his office Um, he was still Uh, working at Ozark in the admissions department. And that's when I actually had
1: to sit down and
0: it's been a journey for 10 years and we all get emotional about it still. (laughs) 10 years have passed. In fact, Uh, Tammy and I were just talking and I I said, I have a feeling this morning is going to be emotional for a lot of people. And and it is. But you know what? I want you to keep hearing this story. So when this happens, be patient with us, because I love I love what God does in this story. It's a powerful story, but uncomfortable friendships, they get messy. They get messy. In fact, you know, David, um, remember what David did before he was king when he was a boy? was a shepherd have you ever worked with sheep anybody here ever worked with sheep okay so so one person they are disgusting little animals you know what happens when they get scared and you pick them up they poop all over you they literally poop you know you have a here's the reality you know you have a good shepherd when he stinks now I don't say that to be funny Because the only way he can be like that is if he's close with the sheep. See, if you're going to be a person like Nathan, you're going to step in other people's messes. And their messes are going to get on you. And Jesus, remember what Jesus said? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And I want you to capture that with what we just talked about. Do you know what that means? He's gotten in your mess and my mess And our mess is upon Him. And He wasn't afraid to get messy with our lives. And so yes, sometimes when you tell your story, even though years have gone by and you're a different person, when you think back to the mess, it touches and breaks your heart. It does. Okay? So, and here's the other thing. This is one of the toughest guys I know. And if his heart is this tender, I praise God for that. Because he could be hardened and just act tough and But he's got an incredible story to share of what God has done. So have I given you enough time? Yeah. All right. All right. So admitting that I had an affair and that
2: I'd gotten another woman pregnant, um, it's easy to do by
1: text message. Hmm.
2: It's not so easy sitting in front of one of your friends and um, Hmm. someone who the church had said, this guy will walk with you. Um, during this time. So admitting your sin, when it says to repent to one another, is a very crucial step. It's hard.
0: Why would you say it's so crucial to be able to verbalize it in front of other people? Not always in front of a congregation, but at least people who are safe in Christ. Why is that vulnerability of confessing sin so important? Um, I think it's because
2: you're putting... um, we all try to hide who we truly are inside. We don't want people to see um, the sin that we have, the things that we've done, because we think no one will love me. Like if they knew what I truly was, Mm -hmm. how I act. So when you you take that step and you share that sin and you open yourself up to another person and say, here is the most vulnerable parts of my life. I don't know what you're going to do with that but I trust you. And I think that's one of the first steps that God has us do to say, I'm trusting someone who is underneath God to help take care of me and help start the process of what will
0: hopefully be repentance. Mm -hmm. I remember one conversation that we had when we were at Panera. um, And one of the things I had when we had some of our earlier conversations, it was so hard to be vulnerable. I mean, who wants who wants to share secrets, especially ones we've tried to hide? And one of the things I remember we talked about, I had mentioned to you, Brian, every single person has a closet in their heart where they cram all their secret sins that they want no one to enter into. In fact, in our heart, that door is locked. It has a big sign that says, do not enter, no one allowed, and we all protect that part. And in this situation, part of his restoration required that he open that door to let people in. And and that vulnerability, none of us want it. All of us need it. Okay, please understand, every one of you have that secret closet in your heart that that you want no one else in life to see because you're terrified that they'll walk away. You're terrified. But as the body of Christ, we are to be the place where it is safest to invite people into that mess because that's what Jesus has come to redeem. That's what Jesus has come to restore. And it took a while to convince you that you weren't the only sinner in the world. I mean, that really took quite a bit of time that for us to get to that point. And it's...
2: It's amazing that when you sin and you confess that sin for, I think, one of the lies that the devil has, I mean, he's the accuser for a reason. Um, You think that everybody knows, like you walk into a church room and you're like, everybody knows I had an affair with someone and got her pregnant. 99% of those people don't care and don't know. They have no idea, but it's the shame that we live with that. The devil
0: pushes on us so that we will not live our lives to how God wants. And I think that's the trap that the enemy sets for us is shame. The best way I've heard shame defined is, do you know there's a difference between feeling guilty and feeling shame? Do you know the difference between those? The difference is this. Guilt says, uh, I, I have done something wrong. I have done something bad. Guilt is that sensitive conscience that realizes, oof, man, misstep, sin. I, I, that was not right. Guilt is good. If you don't feel guilty for sin, your heart is hardened. Guilt is a gift from God because it's calling us back to a changed life. But here's what shame says. Shame doesn't say, I did something bad. Shame says this, I am bad. Because of what I did. Do you hear the difference? And shame itself is a lie from the enemy. It's a lie from the enemy. Guilt is restorative. Shame traps us. Do you you hear the difference between the two? Shame says, I am bad because of what I did. Guilt says, I did something bad. Huge difference between the two. And that's one of the things that was a big part of the journey is how to overcome that shame through Jesus. So now let me just go back just briefly. We talked about an uncomfortable friend. We said it is an uncomfortable friend is this. It's a fellow disciple of Jesus who helps us avoid becoming hardened to the sins in our lives. Okay.
2: Now it's my turn. It's
0: your turn. So we were having a
2: conversation at Panera. This is where we met um, most of the days. And I'll never forget it. It was just Troy and I for, well, God's providence. But he was pushing me on an issue that I was not willing to bend on. And that's, Troy's good at that if any of you know him. That's not what surprises me. What surprises me (laughs) was
1: his demeanor. His hands were trembling. His voice was shaking, and I couldn't understand it.
2: I had no, no clue what was going on. I mean,
0: do you remember that? Uh-huh. <laughs> one of the things that was going through my head was Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where Paul says this, If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently gently and then it says this but watch yourselves watch yourselves or you also may be tempted and that was the drive of the. I mean yes some of it was I don't know if he's going to punch me because of what I'm saying right now that I got to admit okay but the other struggle for me was man is my heart right to do this Am I, am I in a place that it's that I can do it in a way that God intends? Because here's, here's what we can sometimes do. In fact, here's one of the ways you can tell if your heart is right to be a Nathan for somebody. If your heart is right to be an uncomfortable friend. If you have a Pharisee's heart, don't do it. Don't be a Nathan if you have a Pharisee's heart. If you take, take joy in another person's failure if you have a sense of being spiritually superior because you're in the role of Nathan and they're in the role of David, if you have this sense of being self-righteous, or here's the other thing, if you prefer punishing the person instead of restoring them, don't you dare step into that role of being a Nathan because your life will become a mess at some point. And some of that was in that situation uh, was also this. I wasn't there to punish Brian, that wasn't my role. My role was there to help be restorative. And everything I said, and the tone, the spirit, the words I would express, they would either draw Brian closer to Jesus or move him further away. That is an incredible responsibility. And that shaking of my hands and of my voice, that was a sacred interaction that for me, was kind of terrifying. It was, so if you enter into that situation excited, oh, I can't wait to be a Nathan for Brian. Check the heart. Check the heart. Because the enemy will come after you if that's your heart. Um, in your story, you sat in David's seat. And in verses 9 and 10, Nathan tells David that he despised the word of the Lord. To despise the word of the Lord meant that he despised God. At what point did you finally recognize that you were despising God's word and God by your actions?
1: Um, It took a while. Um,
2: True repentance um, is not something that happens overnight. Um, I was sorry that she was pregnant. Um, because I knew I was in sin, I was sorry that I had told people, um but it was not true repentance. Um, Troy and I were having a conversation about grace, and I cannot we talked about it the other night, and I can't remember the turn of phrase he used, but basically, he asked me if I was going to be a man who used grace as a shield to just live how I wanted. Or if I used grace as an armor of God to live as a man of God and to use that grace to help other people. And in that moment I realized um I had been, and this is months in, probably six, eight months in, I'd realized, oh,
0: I I was doing that. Six months in. At least. It- it's a long journey. In fact, there was one point where, in fact, I think it was that that day where I pushed hardest on you that um, I could tell by the look on his face that he's either going to walk out of here and I will never see him again or he's going to walk out and something's going to change and I didn't know which what which it was going to be. I just knew that that was a pivotal conversation mm-hmm. in, in not only your journey but also in our friendship yep. that it's, and I didn't know the outcome, but I just remember that. That, uh, In fact, I called Tammy up afterwards, uh, and I just said, I don't know if we're ever going to see him again. I just don't. Um, describe the ways you resisted the truth that you were despising God. What, what were the means that you used to, just, to resist that reality that, um, that you were despising
2: God? Um. I think the biggest thing I would do is I would justify um, very easily what I was doing. And I I had a flawed theology, Um, I felt like, and knew in my head and my heart, which Isaiah talks about your heart, it's not a pretty thing, (laughs) that God wanted me happy, and that my happiness is what God cared about more than anything. So... Troy was confronting me with my sin that made me happy. And on the other side was the flawed theology that I was like, but God wants me happy. And I would just justify whatever I needed to do so that I could live in that sin. And I was despising God's word in that moment. Number one, because I really wasn't in my Bible at the time.
0: Stop right there for just a moment. Um, How long had you been in the church? Now, because this happened ten years ago, how long to that point? How long had you been in the church? So I had been attending College Heights. Uh, Well, I was baptized
2: at the age of fourteen, and just to be perfectly honest, I I lived like the world. I I did not have any discipleship, so I had been at College Heights, a member of College Heights, or attending College Heights, I should say, since two thousand. I had been on praise team for probably. Six or seven years. So I was serving in a leadership role on stage at a church. Um, and I had hid my sin for all of those years. And um, it was just one of those things that I just continued to justify because I
0: felt like God wanted me happy.
1: Hmm.
2: Hmm.
0: And then then there was a time though that as a result of your um repentance. Uh, things began to change. What began to change in you after that point of finally coming to repentance, not just being sorry for your sin, but truly saying, Lord, change my heart,
2: change my life. So one of the things I had to do was um, the Lord had led me down this path and he said, okay, so to prove um, to other people that you are truly a man who is after my heart, I had to reach out to those people who I had hurt. So I was in a a home group at the time. Um, I had to reach out to uh, my ex-wife. I had to reach out to the members of my home group and, um, offer to sit down with them to hear whatever that may be, whether it was forgiveness or no, I'm not going to forgive you or whatever that was. And those were one of the, there was probably seven or eight letters that I had to write and had to have meetings with people that were um, part of one of the biggest changes because as someone who had fallen in sin and to sit in front of somebody who, again, I knew all of their sin, but yet I'm asking them for forgiveness for how I treated them in that moment. And I'm, I'm sure Troy has said it, but our sin is not just mine. It affected So many other people that in that moment and the justification, I couldn't see it. I was like, this just affects me and like three or four other people and that's it. And it's so much broader than that.
1: Mm.
2: But that was one of the biggest ways that I started to see changes. My heart softened. I started to care about the people that I'd hurt in the Mm. beginning. I had no worries with or cared about at all.
0: Mm. One of my favorite parts of this story with David after Nathan is talking to him is after David repents, Nathan tells David this in verse 13. The Lord has taken away your sin. He's forgiven. Now, something we need to remember as the church in this context, this forgiveness occurs before Jesus has died on the cross. So at this point, David is living under the old covenant, and if you remember the old covenant, it required that something or someone must pay the cost for David's sin. Someone or something had to cover that sin because Jesus has not died yet at this point. And something or some, someone had to die for David's life to be saved. He's been forgiven. And remember what the law required for an adulterer or for a murder. What did it require? That they be stoned to death. But in David's forgiveness, something or someone must die to pay the cost for sin. Now, here's why this is so important to understand. We think of sin as oops, I made a mistake. Is that the Bible's view of sin? No, the Bible says, my sin, my sin, my speck of sin cannot be tolerated in the presence of a perfectly holy God. It takes drastic measures for that sin to be dealt with. Um, the sacrifice, can you imagine, in fact, think of it this way. Um, in the Old Testament, when you and your family would go to offer the sacrifice for that your sins, you would have to take your best bull or your best lamb, or if you were really poor, your best dove. The one you... Like this little guy. Probably the one you slept with or that slept in your arms because you loved it so much. And you had to take that little lamb, the best one you had, and that lamb had to give up its life for your sin. Why? Because God wants us to see how serious sin is. Sin is not just, oops, I did it again. Sin is... Sin is an attack against the holiness of God. So David has this realization, and he knows this. He knows his life has been been spared. And verse 14 tells us this, that that someone else that needs to pay the price is the baby that Bathsheba is carrying. Now hang in with me here, because this is where things could get sidetracked. And I want you to, we don't have a lot of time. So here's what I want to say. This is when we could get stuck in the debate of the morality of this punishment. But to avoid getting stuck, let's have faith. All of us, let's just have faith for a moment that God has the power and the goodness to turn the death of an innocent person into a new life for a guilty sinner. Can we believe it is possible Can we believe it is possible for God to take the death of an innocent person to cover the sin of a guilty person, and that this truly is good news, that God can do this? Can we have faith in that for just a few moments here as we go through the rest of the story? Can we believe that, that God can take the death of an innocent person to redeem a guilty person? Can we believe that for just a few moments here? All right, now watch what happens in this story. Delivery day comes, and David's son is born. And that baby becomes ill. And David falls into the dust of the ground. He's dressed in clothes of mourning. And he prays. He fasts for days, pleading with God to change his mind, to spare the life of David's baby boy. Because the prophet Nathan has already told David, your son will die because of your sin. And David is pleading and pleading and pleading with God to change his mind. But David's sin demands payment and David's life is only possible through the substitutionary death of David's son. Now listen to me, church. Just as David's son must die so David can have life, God's innocent son Jesus had to die so we could have life. In David's infant son, God is pointing to his son, Jesus. Jesus would die for our sins. Every one of us is a David. Every one of us is a David. And Jesus will die for our sins. The innocent one dies to save the guilty. Now watch how this impacts David. While lying in the dust of the ground, David is told the news that his son has died. And instead of mourning and grieving, here's what verse 20 tells us David does after he hears the news that his son has died. It says this, David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Then he went to his own house and at his request, they served him food and he ate. That sounds like a strange response, doesn't it? His baby boy has just died and he worships and he goes to the table to eat. What? But we got to read the story backwards. We got to go back to the book of Genesis to understand what David is doing right here. You see, the dust of the ground, it represents death, doesn't it? After the fall of Adam and Eve, God tells them, for for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Genesis 3, 19. So dust is death. And in rising from the dust of death, David goes to a table. A table.
1: For we as Christians, what does the table of the Lord's Supper represent?
0: Resurrection and new life right? Resurrection and new life. It's through, the David, it's through the death of David's son that David is saved and is resurrected to a new life. And I want you to see with clarity the gospel in this story of Nathan and David. This is the picture of the good news that is coming through Jesus Christ.
1: That is the gospel that saved me. I didn't understand
2: how that worked. I didn't understand what that looked like. I didn't understand what it means that because Jesus died for my sins, I needed to die to my sins to be reborn again to walk with a new life in Jesus Christ.
0: Mm -hmm. In fact, here's the thing that, this is going to be my favorite part of this discussion. How this story ends, we often miss it when we read it. In David's story, I love the image that we see in verse 27. In it, this is the point where General Joab, he goes to war, and when he wins the war, he comes back and he makes this public announcement. Here's what he says. We have captured the city of waters. We have captured the city of waters. Now we hear that and we're like, okay, so what? But this is a picture of Eden. See, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, 10 to 14, Eden is described as having one river that separated into four headwaters. So, in capturing the city of waters, the author of Samuel is showing us that David's repentance led to David's forgiveness. And out of David's forgiveness, through the death of his son, it now leads him to the city of waters. David is being restored to God's kingdom. This is a picture of the city of waters. It's a picture of David is now restored into right relationship with God. But we miss that. So let me ask you this, Brian. When did you realize your restoration to God and the church was complete? Um,
2: the church was very good about... Um putting people around me. I was allowed to pick a team and there was times where I realized I'm, I'm starting to grow in my faithfulness and talking to Troy and some others. But the, the one thing that sticks out in my mind was, um, I actually had to meet with the elders to get back into the church so I could actually worship there again. So I show up at the church and I had to walk across the parking lot and I don't know, well, God placed him there. But one of the men who were on staff had been through church discipline before. And we met in the parking lot and he walked me in and he knew what was going on. And he said, he's like, I've, I've been through this process. Um, He's like, if you will allow this, this will completely change your life.
1: Hmm.
2: Went inside, sat down. Um, Elders were there. They came, laid their hands on me. They prayed on me and they, Prayed over me and they restored me back to the church. And that was, it's like a Wednesday or a Thursday. It was kind of a, a weird day to do it. And then that Sunday was the first Sunday I was, it's
1: the first Sunday I was allowed back to my church. I would love
2: to say bells and whistles and fireworks went off. I tried to get as small as I could mm-hmm. in the church because I was still afraid that people might know who
0: I was.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But what makes a restoration story the most powerful is when we hear how God takes what we have done and brings something amazing out of it. Uh, Brian, once you were restored, how has God used your story to advance His kingdom since then? Um,
2: through several events, um, of God's mercy and grace, I started working at Ozark Christian College. Um, and I think he had me cleaning toilets for a reason.
1: There's some humility and
2: some things I needed to learn. Um, I have since, um, been able to use that time Um, I now have an associate's degree from Ozark. Um, I lead a life group um, of young men who are struggling with a lot of the things that I've struggled with, and just being able to pour into these young men. Um, God has placed in my life um, men who have had issues in their marriage very similar to mine. And
1: some have stayed, some have walked away. And I've had... Some of those moments. Mm -hmm. And it was hard.
2: But it was beautiful because thousands of years ago, God weaved this story together. And now he's weaving my story 10 years ago. And I don't know how he's going to use this story today moving forward over the next 10 years. But I promise you, he will. That's how God works. And in Psalm 51, um, Mm -hmm. God talks about That's been, that was kind of my verse for restoration. 11 through 15, it says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. As hard as the last 10 years have been, there's been a part of
1: that that has unfolded Mm -hmm. in my life because of my
0: Nathans. What I want you to hear in this, a David who went through the process became a Nathan for others. In fact, this guy's been a Nathan in my life. Uh, He's asked me some tough questions. He's helped me to explore some things in my heart that uh, in going through difficult times, he's asked me the tough questions that I was like, "Okay, I want to punch you in the nose.
2: That was awesome, by the way.
0: But I want you to understand that in God's hands, a David can become a Nathan. So here's the question I want to leave you with this morning after this conversation. Who is your Nathan? Who is your Nathan that can help you deal with those hidden things that you have tucked away that you want no one else to see? And can I tell you, it can't be your spouse. It can't be your spouse. Who is your Nathan? I, this has gone longer than I had wanted it to, Um but I think maybe it may not be a bad thing to ask this question. What kind of questions do you have? For it? We covered a lot. This is something that would be best in an multiple hours of conversation, but we've had to cr- cr- cram into this short amount of time. What what questions from the text does this raise for you or what questions about Brian's testimony? Anything? Do you see the child that came out of that
2: affair? Um, He's sitting right here in the front row with me and his mother. Dax, stand up and give him a wave, buddy.
1: (laughs) So the interesting, (laughs) interestingly, I did have a fear that God may take my child. Rightfully so. I'd My sin against a holy God. But now it's
2: my job to raise him in fear and admonition of the Lord. I'm his Nathan until he has someone his age who is also wise enough
0: to do that for him. Mm-hmm. And when, when he says... They are a family that is in the Word. They are a family that that prays together, and I love how you just said that—that that you are your son's Nathan. That that's that's a great way to vis- to envision what we are to do as parents for our kids. Good question. Anything else? All right, we're going to keep the worship service going here, but here's what I want to do. This sermon will hit everybody in different ways. Hit a bunch of people in different ways. But if out of this conversation and out of this text, your your sense of needing to make a decision for Jesus, or your sense of, I need a Nathan. um, Would you do me a favor? Brian and I are going to sit over here, and if you want to talk, we'll be right over here. We'll pray with you. We'll talk with you, and if you're like, well, I'd rather wait till the service is done, we'll stay over here. But if you've got a decision that God is prompting on your heart, don't ignore what God is seeking to do, what God is saying to you.